listening to Story City Church in Granada Hills, California. We exist to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and with others. And here is this week's message. Uh, as we read the scriptures, we're in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, well, Justin will be able to share the word with us today and be blessed by his uh, the message that the Lord has given him. After I read the passage, I will say this is the word of the Lord and you will respond by saying thanks be to God. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and, give, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as it as in a mirror, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Love you. You want your phone? Oh man, first worship sent me, and then Sam talking sent me. It's going to take me a little while to build up, I'm sorry y'all. Well, good morning church. You got to talk back to me, please, and thank you. Man, Story City, it's good to be with you. It's good to see faces that my wife and I have prayed for over the last few months. And so to finally see you and acknowledge you is just uh, a gift to my soul. My name is Justin, as Sam said. My wife, Adriana, and I have been married 10 years. We have three uh, wonderfully savage little boys. So pray for us. Um, I serve as a pastor of Cross. Point Church in Orlando to be sent out as the planting pastor of New City Fellowship, also in Orlando, and we hope to launch this coming January. It is my hope, family, uh, that you would join us in prayer uh, as we seek God to be, uh, and his gospel, to be more deeply saturated and more beautifully upheld in the city of Orlando. Uh, But before I begin, uh, I want to thank Samir uh, 
I heard there was like a Sam era, so I've been calling you Sam this whole time. Uh, I want to thank Samir and uh, his wife Shirley for the gift and privilege to be with you this morning. I love these two so much. They have championed us every step of the way of this journey over the last four or five years. It's just been a gift so much. I don't think they know how much we love us. These things are no small things to me. Uh, Over our five-day stay, we're staying with them. And so there's five of us in their house, eating up their food, taking up their hot water, snoring all types of crazy. Um, It's just... Man, these things are not small to me, and so thank you. To be here before this congregation that, uh, you, will, that you lead is, is no small thing to me. To exposit God's word before you all is no small thing to me. All right, let's get to work. Y'all ready to study your Bibles? Yes, sir. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. I come from a church tradition, a preaching style that's called dialogical preaching. It's that you and I engage in a dialogue. That you remind me as I remind you that this word preached is not just for you. It is for me as well. Okay? So if you grew up in that tradition, this is a safe place. Shout back at me. I won't get, I won't get bothered or distracted. Okay? But if that's not you, don't be something you're not, okay? Your pen clicking, your note taking, your faces of pondering the Lord's things are holy to me as well. So don't mind if I tease and prompt. That's just how we talk, okay? Cool? Yeah. Okay. I know I said I wasn't going to say nothing, but then I ain't getting no response after. So, I mean, just give me a little bit. Why don't you meet me in 1 Corinthians? I mean, you should already be there, but give me some time to frame up our time. If you were to skim 1 Corinthians, you would be left wondering why Paul would write a letter to this church filled with some of the most random topics and themes. But if you were to study the book, as you all have been doing these last few weeks, you would begin to see that these seemingly random topics, conclusions, outbursts of praise to God, are all interwoven and relevant to a body of believers struggling not just with the external realities of the faith, but also and more importantly, the internal ones. Paul writes this letter to an assembly of people who are ambitious in character and nature. They are go-getters, business people, culture inhibitors. Corinth was not a city that was built way, way, way before this letter was written. In fact, it is a fairly new city and one that was built out of strategic necessity. It is a place where trade, it makes sense for trade to come all over that region through this city. And so the people who migrated to this city, because there weren't people before, migrated to the city were hustlers. They were go-getters. They wanted to go there to make something of themselves. But they were crazy also, a little bit. But this is where God, through Paul, plants a church. And I would argue a good church, too. 
sometimes we read through 1 Corinthians and we see these particular struggles of these people and we begin to kind of talk about them as if they were not of the family of faith. That is not true. In fact, I would believe that it is the church at Corinth that reminded Paul that God could change anybody. That crooked sticks indeed do make straight lines. That his story was not the only story of dramatic transformation, but a reminder to Paul that God is in the business of changing the wretched and making them saints. That he is in the business of taking the stranger and making them family. They were certainly difficult people to pastor for sure. They were not perfect. They struggled. But what I love about Paul, and I don't mean to be this preachy this early, is that 1 Corinthians reminds us that we don't quit on our friends. We come, church, to the 13th chapter of a book that seeks to help his friends get back right. To help them reimagine what Jesus meant when he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Because certainly, obviously, we can see that they're getting some of these things wrong. But keep that in mind as we study. Paul is not writing these people with the primary intention to fix their morality. We do know that there are some morality issues here, okay? But that is not the focus of his discipleship. He is not writing to modify their behavior, rather to teach them to cling deeply to their savior. He is not writing these people to become something they aren't, to assimilate them into a subjective picture of perfection, no. Paul is asking them to do something much harder and much more important than that. Paul is asking Corinth to be like Christ. To live all of their lives in him. See, if you try to fix up your morals in Jesus' name, without surrendering your heart to Jesus' aims, you'll find that these words in 1st and 2nd Corinthians will land on you differently. Our text today sort of acts like a bridge, a bridge between last week's message in chapter 12 and next week's message in chapter 14. It's, it's kind of a mini series inside of a series. See, see, the Corinthians took their ambition and all of these sort of sociological realities of who they were and took that into the realm of ministry. And now they have misused the wonderful spiritual gifts of God. These are not gifts they possess on their own. Notice this. These are God's gifts bestowed upon man for the proclamation of his word. And the Corinthians have taken God's things, thinking it was theirs, and have created competition, status, assigned praise to themselves for their ability to wield his things. They take the praise owed to God for his miraculous gifts and ascribe it to themselves. 
Maybe, with, maybe, maybe you all with children can understand this. You ever went to a play date with another family that had kids and your kids brought toys? And those kids like your kids' toys so much that when it's come time to leave, they try to take those toys like if it was theirs the whole time? Then they, I don't know what I'm talking about. Y'all need to go out on mission and hang out with some bad kids. Am I the only one hanging out? Are my kids the only one hanging out with bad kids? <laughs> but this is exactly what's happening here. And though Paul is certainly giving a pastoral presentation on how gifts should operate, that is not why he writes. He writes about something deeper, about what is behind the gifts, the source of the gifts, and the reason for their existence. And here's what that is. To remind the church, and the least, and the last, and the lost, that there is a God who loves them deeply, waiting to embrace them for all of eternity. That is at the heart of what Paul writes. So I want to talk to you from the title today, What's Love Got to Do With It? What's Love Got to Do With It? Yes, there's some creative borrowing I took in that. <laughs> As we see in this section of this letter, three deep and meaningful aspects of love. These characteristics of love that certainly apply to the gifts of the Spirit, but more deeply our hearts as we relate to God. Three points and then I'll sit back down. Love is enriching, love is edifying, love is enduring. Enriching, edifying, enduring. Could I invite you to breathe a word of prayer with me before we begin? God, we come to your house to be with your people. May your glory be revealed in the proclamation of your word. May your son be seen more beautifully in the hearing of your word. May your bride, we the church, be edified in the digestion of your word. Father, would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought, and would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and much grace from my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. This year, for like the fourth time in my lifetime, I read uh, the Harry Potter books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. E each time I read these books, there's always something else that jumps out of me, uh, jumps out at me with such profundity. If you don't know anything about these books, I'll try and keep it spoiler free, but I can't make any promises. Harry is a young boy who grows up an orphan because of the big bad in the story, Lord Voldemort. And Lord Voldemort is understatably obsessed with power. He despises not only weakness, but incompetence. And so he has dedicated every waking minute of his life to, un to understand the magic of this world and master it. However, throughout this, these series of books, Voldemort is continually bested by a child. Harry is not a proficient wizard. Surely he's no weakling or a pushover, but he's not extremely learned in any way. He always escapes danger and bests every opponent narrowly and miraculously. As a reader, as a first-time reader, you probably get annoyed a little bit. Like, what kind of plot armor does this child have? Like, you're frustrated with it. But there's a very special chapter in the fifth book that explains everything. Spoiler alert. I remember the first time I read this chapter, the revelation was almost underwhelming. I won't lie. But as I got older, 
It actually became more and more beautiful. Harry had just suffered extreme loss. He's grieving, violently grieving. And once again, he has narrowly escaped the clutches of Lord Voldemort. In a conversation with his mentor and headmaster, Harry learns it's not that Harry is powerful. Voldemort is much more powerful by every stretch of the imagination than he is. It's not that Harry is crafty. Voldemort is far and away more cunning. It's not even that he's lucky. Voldemort is far too calculated for that. It's that Harry possesses something that Voldemort does not. And Voldemort cannot understand this. And here's what it is. Harry has genuine love and affection for his friends. And simultaneously, he is deeply loved by his friends. It's proven in his actions that he does what he does not for any other reason than love. Voldemort cannot understand this. His quest for power has made him unable to carry any semblance of affection for another person. And because so, he is continually bested by an underage, not particularly brilliant wizard because of his inability to genuinely love. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, is that what those books are about? It's kind of lame. <laughs> Except, it's exactly what Paul's getting at in this part of the letter. To this letter in Corinth, and dare I say to you and I today, what Paul writes is for us. Few chapters in the Bible have been misinterpreted to the degree this one has. You most likely heard this chapter at weddings and vows and coffee cups and whatever the case may be. And divorced from its original context, this chapter doesn't really fit in to the narrative of the book. It becomes a random hymn of love or a sermon on Christian fellowship or brotherhood or sisterhood. But if you've been studying this book like you all have over the past few weeks, then you heard it. This is a rebuke. This chapter does not make us go, ah. Oh. When the Corinthians opened the scroll with eagerness and got to this section, they were offended. This is a scathing rebuke. Paul, Paul certainly is dealing with some of the external realities, some of those problems that they're having in the church, the, the, the impatience with one another, the lawsuits, the selfishness, the envy, the divisions, the disgraceful behavior. But Paul is also addressing deeper things when he writes this beautiful passage. This is not a sidebar in the letter. Family, could it be that you and I could gather together Sing the Lord's praises, break bread, be under the teaching of his sacred text, and still not have hearts able to receive the love of God. Could it be that we could do all of these Christian things and not be changed by the great love of God? 
not be driven to live an honoring life because of the love of God? Could it be that you and I could serve, we could sacrifice, we could give all our efforts to the greatest cause and still find ourselves empty, running low on the deepest love imaginable? At the foundational level of this text lies that reality for you and I to grapple with. But there's a conundrum here, right? You've probably picked it up. What love? Is it love how we use it, right? Because I love pizza and I love my wife, right? I love sushi and I love my children. So what, what, what kind of love are we talking about here? You and I use love interchangeably for crazy things. But the Corinthians had no such problem. See, the Greeks were smart. There was different words for love. The English fails us here. And it depends on the context you're using it in. This word here, love, in this text is agape. It's described neither as selfish passion or brotherly affection. No, but rather a word that carried messianic meaning. I'll help you out. It's an un, there's an unconditional nature in the word Paul uses here. It's a love that has already been defined by God and proved by him sending his son into the world. It's a love that reaches out to those who don't deserve it. It's a love that puts the interests of others before your own. It's a love that forgives the unforgivable, saves the unsavable, redeems the un unredeemable. In other words, it's a love that is the very essence of who God is. That is what Paul is talking about here. In this chapter, Paul switches his listeners' attention from the spiritual gifts, which had been a source of division, to the supreme gifts of all gifts, one which would unite them and make them one, the love of God. Look at verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but, not, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. From these verses, we find the first attribute, the first aspect of this love, that it is enriching. Paul names five spiritual gifts here. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, and giving sacrifice, right, interchangeably. And he systematically argues that in each of these gifts, love is not only necessary for the use and operation of them, but that love is the very essence of them, and without it, they depreciate the gift and the giver. Think about it, family. In every religious controversy, in every heated spiritual debate, isn't it love that leaves first? In moral failures, it's love that leaves first. 
and heated debates on politics and their applications, it's love that leaves first. Even in civil discourses you might have with your spouses or your loved ones or your children or a close friend, isn't it love that leaves first? It's my interest, my point, my perspective over yours. The Corinthians embodied this. They argued pro and con over their favorite gift, which was tongues. And Paul says, if I, exercise the, if, I, if I exercise the gift of tongues, the eloquent utterance of heaven, without love, I am little more than a noisy gong. That's interesting imagery here. Let me help you out. In many pagan temples at the time, there stood in the entrance a gong, a symbol. And as people entered the temple, they would strike it. And the purpose was to rouse the gods, to, to get their attention. How fruitless that would be for you and me. No? How fruitless. Because we serve a God that the psalmist says always inclines his ear towards his children. We serve a God who never sleeps nor slumbers, who is never bored or apathetic towards his children's things. We serve a God who is our father and unlike our earthly fathers whom we could annoy with our frequent and selfish requests, God the Father is never annoyed, never grows tired of hearing his children's petition for the, his intervention. Church, you don't have to speak in tongues to get God's attention. You don't have to work to rouse him. He is always awake, always alert, always listening and working for your good and mine. I wish I had somebody who believed that this morning. Paul says here, you speak in tongues without love, you're just noise. It doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't serve you. It doesn't serve them. It doesn't serve God. You're loud for no reason. And the same goes for prophecy in verse 2. The Corinthians placed a high value on the secret, sacred knowledge of God, the, the knowledge of mysteries that can only be wisdom from God. And Paul is unimpressed. Scathing rebuke. Scathing rebuke. The very things that are important to them, Paul says, no, 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 no. What good is knowledge stripped of love? Intelligence without love is ignorance. Even for those whose gift was service and giving, the same applied. The giving up of the things you value, the giving up of the things that are worth much to you, your time, your talents, your treasure, apart from love are actually valueless. They're worthless. Oh, how we love to serve. But do you love those whom you serve as Christ loves you and them? It is love that in each of these gifts enriches the gift and gives it its value. When love has transformed the user of the gift to the other most, the gift enriches in turn the body of Christ. Oh, how could we ever receive a loveless Savior or a loveless cross? 
Is it not love that enriches the bloody cross and our broken Savior's sacrifice to know that Christ did not take nails, Christ did not take the crown, he did not give up himself merely out of duty, but because we are his. It's love that enriches the cross for us. It's love that enriches the empty tomb for us. It is love that enriches our lives even when things are heavy and weary so that when you go through what you go through in life, you can stand firm and confident knowing you don't have a dispassionate savior. Jesus' love enriches us. Paul continues to his next point. Love is edifying. Look at verse four. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Doesn't that sound like the words he said in chapter eight? Knowledge puffeth up, but love edifies. It builds up. God gives the church spiritual gifts, not so they might grow in individualism, but be edified collectively. The gifts grow the church. The gifts edify it. And for the church to be edified, one must follow the second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. Consider your neighbor before considering yourself. To edify is to decrease in self-centeredness and to increase in other-centeredness. It is to say that on our best days, we should long to give this kind of love and that on our worst days, we should long to receive it. Don't you see, family, the complementary nature of the distribution of the spiritual gifts? The Corinthians were impatient with each other in public, but this love would make them long-suffering for each other. They were envious of each other, but this love would massage out the stiffness of envy. They were puffed up with pride, but this love would strip away their pride and promote each other instead. There would not be a need for a lawsuit if they just loved each other like Christ had loved them, who when we were on trial for our sin, for our offenses toward him and found guilty, he took the stand in our place instead. I'll take the punishment instead. I will take the death sentence so that they could have life. Family, is this not what our big brother John writes in his letter? In 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins in other words church there is a connection and edification between how we love one another and how God loves us but don't get the text confused it's not saying that we love others in the exact same way God loves us it says that we experience love because God loved us and God is love. I'll say it this way. Lovelessness is godlessness. 
If you don't have love, you don't have God. But you don't love like God. You love because God. Let this edify you this morning. This is good news to the discouraged, to the disheartened, to the downtrodden. This is good news to the encouraged and the full of heart and the joyful this morning. God has shown, and not just shown, but put his love on you, giving you the clearest, purest, bestest display love has ever shown us in his son, Jesus. And we get the duty, the privilege, the honor to reflect that love in each other and in this city. You bring glory to God when you love others well. But maybe, maybe you feel like this is an impossibility for you. Maybe, maybe you're a small plate person. Or, and more realistically, maybe it's not that. I'm sorry, I forgot my towel. Maybe it's not that. Maybe people are just hard to love. People make it hard for you to love them like this. Let's be honest, people be trifling. <laughs> Some people are hard to love. But let me, let me try and encourage you with this. In baseball, it's typically the best players who hit the ball three out of 10 times. Can you believe that? The best players only make contact 30% of the time. And some batters are obsessed with gaining every statistical and superstitious advantage they could get. Ted Williams, you might know him as Ball Game Teddy, or the Kid, or the Splendid Splinter, or the Thumper. He is regarded as one of the greatest hitters in history. He hit 34 balls out of every 100 thrown at him. That's 34%. And yet people would always talk about how he would be obsessed every single night before a game just thinking about the ecstasy of seeing the ball fly 34% of the time. Maybe that's you, trying your hardest to love like this text describes, but only getting it right a third of the time. But go to bed every night, obsessing with getting up the next morning to try again. That's the heart of the matter. Paul concludes, we'll start in verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. There could be no better way to end this portion of the letter 
than reminding or the reminder of the enduring power of God's love. As the Corinthians concerned themselves with their own ability and works, believing those things would sustain them in their walk, love, Paul says, endures all things. Not even the greatest gift, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge are as enduring, have the staying power that love has. There is a finality in them. They will meet an end date. Miracles could be performed by anyone. God can use anyone and anything to accomplish his purpose, but to reflect Christ takes a supernatural work of the heart. Right. takes to have an eternal perspective is a product of receiving the enduring love of God. I said before, the Corinthians played with God's gifts like children playing with toys, trying to take it home for themselves what does not belong to them. But it takes wisdom. It takes maturity to know, believe, and behold that even though some things cease, others will not. If God is love, and God has no beginning, and God has no end, then what is love's longevity? Oh, it's enduring. It stays. It lasts. It endured all things for you and endures all things now for you. Oh, church, you got to see this. I got to close. But I'm reminded of this beautiful passage Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Family, praise God that his love Love's endurance is twofold. His love endures just how John wrote, that his love endured the cross, and that the love of God endures still, no matter what we might face in life. You need to know this. Christ endured the cross for you. His love is perfect for you, and simultaneously, because his love endured the cross, it can endure everything else. You can never, church, never be separated from the love of God because love covers a multitude of sins because love is patient because love endures all things see God could have remained in heaven great and glorious as he is but the world his creation became fractured because of sin God went on the move and in the beginning of the gospel we can see God saying don't worry children I'll fix the problem myself I'm going to send my son down to begin making things new again and Christ came and what he do he lived a perfect life he kept every law tradition and expectation then what happened he died but it wasn't a normal death no 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 he died till sin a Apologized. He died till death died with him. But did he stay dead, church? No, he did not. He came back, raised from the dead bodily. If you want to know if God loves you, all you have to do is look at the cross for just a minute. That's right. Because if you look to that blood-stained tree, 
you will see the cost of God's love for you. You will see the totality of his love for you. You will find that it enriches you. You will see that it edifies you and you will discover that it has endured for you. It's a love that adopts you from the darkest lonesomeness into the family of light. Love that redeems you and makes you new every day. Love that grafts you in, weaves you into the household of God. And now that we know God has loved us, that God has shown his love for us in Jesus, because he has shown us Jesus, nothing, I need you to say it back to me one time, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Can tribulation? No. Can distress? No. I don't hear you. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness or danger? Can the sword? Nothing. Because his love endures. Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now when the weariness of this world presses upon you, you can rejoice in that old song of the saints. Do you know this one? His forever and only his who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, what a rest of bliss. Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light and gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. Stand with me and worship. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are Sundays at 10 a.m. and we're located at 11011 Havenhurst Avenue in Granada Hills. Find us on Instagram at StoryCityGH or online at StoryCityChurch.com. Go and be the church.